right, good morning, everyone. You can kind of finish up your conversation. For those online, I'm excited to hear what your favorite Disney movie was. Uh, in the first service, there was a bit of a uh, debate between whether Pixar and Disney are the same thing. Um, which, if Pixar and Disney are the same thing, that adds a bunch of movies, and if they aren't, it takes away a bunch of movies. I'm personally the Disney fan, uh, like Disney is its own thing, but that's beside the point. Anyways, welcome to Mill City this morning. Welcome to those of you at Sheridan, those of you online. We're so glad you're with us uh, this Sunday morning here at Sheridan Elementary. Well, as I was thinking of this community time question, what is my favorite Disney movie? I, I, I have an answer. My favorite Disney movie of all time is The Lion King. Is anyone, do I, where are my Lion King fans out here? Amazing, amazing. Well, I love the characters and I love the music. I love the whole movie, but I especially love the story of Lion King. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, here's a quick recap. So in the story of Lion King, you have this little lion cub named Simba who is destined to be king. But due to a loss in his family, which he wrongly blames on himself, Simba is led into a time of wilderness. Wilderness. Can you understand why I love the story and how this fit in with the sermon and the series? That's amazing. <laughs> so Simba is led into this time of wilderness, and this time of wilderness is a time of testing of Simba's identity. What identity is Simba going to hold on to? Is he going to listen to the Akuna Matata or No Worries way of life? Is he going to listen to the lies that say he is unworthy to be king? Or is he going to hold on to the identity that he is the true king, the heir to the kingdom? Well, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Lion King yet, but he holds on to the true identity that he is the king, that he is heir to the kingdom. And there's a beautiful scene at the end of the movie where Simba is not walking, I guess he's crawling up to this rock, and it is raining, and there's a voice from the sky that says, remember who you are. And the music goes, da, 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 and Simba roars, and I cry every single time that happens. There is something so beautiful about Simba going into a time of wilderness, facing the lies that, he is, that are confronting his identity and coming out with his identity secure, that he is the king. Now, as I was thinking about Lion King, I realized that a lot of the stories and narratives we like as a society have this theme of wilderness. Wilderness being this time of waiting or confusion, of struggle or wandering, a time of pain that you just don't really know where you're going. And I realized that we resonate with these stories because seasons of wilderness are part of what it looks like to be human. Another way to say that is times of wilderness are part of the universal human experience. Maybe you've experienced wilderness in your own life. Maybe you would look at your circumstances right now and say, I am going through a season of wilderness right now in my life. Maybe you know people around you who are going through wilderness. Now, the wilderness can be identity-shaking as everything is stripped away. And what we'll find this morning is not only can the wilderness be identity-shaking, but it can be a time of spiritual warfare. As Jesus followers, we know that there is an enemy. And while he's in the process of being defeated, we know that till Jesus returns and makes the wrong things right, there will be darkness and brokenness that we face in this world. 
In the midst of these identity-shaking seasons, spiritual warfare can look like voices of doubt, lies or insecurities, voices of hopelessness that face us as we're trying to navigate the season. Yet in the midst of the wilderness, the Bible reminds us that there is hope. God is with us in the wilderness. And what we'll find in our passage this morning is that Jesus shows us how to navigate these times of wilderness and respond to the lies and insecurities that we might face. So we're going to continue through our series in Matthew, but before we do that, would you pray with me as we welcome the Spirit into our time together this morning? Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for who you are. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who is with us in the waiting. You're a God who sees us and is not let go. So Lord, as we go through our passage this morning, as we look at how to navigate the wilderness, Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Would you draw us closer to you, closer to your love and goodness and kindness? Jesus, we commit this morning to you. Would you lead us? In your name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be working out of Matthew chapter 4 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or you can look at it on your phone. We'll also have it on the screen where you can follow along. Now, just to recap where we've been, last week in chapter 3 of Matthew, we saw Jesus get baptized. And at Jesus' baptism, God affirms Jesus' identity. In front of everyone, God says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, chapter 4 picks up right after this. Jesus, after this baptism, is led into the physical wilderness. He is led into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Jesus is going to face a set of tests from who we find out is called the tempter or Satan. Now, Satan picks these tests that are focused on Jesus' identity. And Satan tempts him to doubt not only his identity, who God says he is, but tempt him to doubt who God is in the midst of his wilderness. As we read this passage this morning, see if you can pick up on some of the lies or some of the doubts that Satan tries to plant in Jesus' life. And see if you can pick up the ways that Jesus responds in the face of these doubts. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. So Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him. Okay, just, just hang on a sec. So Jesus is led into the wilderness and has already been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Put yourself in that situation. Can you imagine how hungry and how exhausted Jesus must have been? It's in, in the midst of this exhaustion, that's when the enemy shows up. When Jesus is tired, the enemy chooses to attack. And doesn't it feel like that in our own lives sometimes? It's when we're exhausted, when we're tired, that's when the lies and the insecurities start to rise up. That's when we start to feel the enemy attacking. And so Jesus is tired, and he's hungry, and the enemy shows up. We pick up in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended So as we look at this passage and as we reflect on it, I've reflected and I find that there are three underlying doubts that Satan tries to plant in Jesus that attack his identity and attack who God is. So looking at the first test that Satan uses to tempt Jesus, here's what I think the underlying doubt Satan tries to plant in Jesus' mind is. The underlying doubt is, if God really loved you, wouldn't he provide what you want? Notice how Satan begins the first test, if you are the son of God. But what did we read about in chapter 3? God tells Jesus, this is my son whom I love. Yet that identity that Jesus is the loved son of God is the first thing that Satan goes after. It's like Satan is saying, Jesus, you're hungry and you've been fasting for 40 days. You could probably use some food. In fact, you want some food. If God really loved you, wouldn't he provide what you want? Satan tempts Jesus to not only doubt God's love, but God's provision. Well, we see Jesus responds to this doubt by quoting Scripture. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I'd encourage you for not only this story, but for all of Matthew. Matthew quotes a lot of the Old Testament. And so when Matthew quotes the Old Testament... Go back and read the Old Testament. Read that passage in its context, and you'll find it adds a lot of meaning and direction to where Matthew is going. So we're going to go back into Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now, this passage is about the nation of Israel in their own season of wilderness, which we can read about in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And it says, God humbled you, or the nation of Israel, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's where this passage comes from. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Jesus thinks back to what God had done in the past. Not only did God provide food in ways that Israel didn't expect, but my favorite line is that last line, Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell. What a tangible reminder that God would provide just what Israel needed for each day. When you're walking in the wilderness, what you need is feet that can make that journey, that aren't going to swell or aren't going to ache, and God provided exactly what Israel needed to walk through the wilderness. In the same way, in the face of this doubt, if God really loves you, wouldn't God provide what you want? I wonder if Jesus used the scripture to remember and declare, I know God loves me. And because God loves me, 
God will provide what I need for each day. In times of wilderness, the enemy is going to invite us to doubt God's provision and God's love for us. If God doesn't provide how we want God to provide, the lie can begin to creep in that since God didn't provide what you want, God must not really love you. Yet in this first test, Jesus reminds us that God loves us so much that he does provide. God provides exactly what we need to get through each day. And honestly, I know in the wilderness seasons of my own life, that has been a reminder that I've needed. It might not be what I want, but God loves me and is going to provide what I need for each day. So Satan first tempts Jesus to doubt God's love and God's provision. And in the second test, Satan doubles down, inviting Jesus to doubt God's love again. Although this time, Satan uses scripture, although he's definitely misquoting Psalm 91 here. It should bring to mind another time in scripture where the enemy uses God's own words and kind of twists them to sow doubt in the minds of those who are listening. Can you remember when in the Bible does that happen? Yeah, in the garden. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are there, and the enemy twists God's word to sow doubt in their lives. Yet where Adam represented humanity and failed, Jesus was going to represent humanity and stand firm. In Jesus standing firm, we know that we can look to Jesus in the seasons of wilderness when we face the doubts and lies, and we can stand firm in Jesus' name. So Satan misquotes scripture, and Jesus takes that misquote and volleys back with another scripture, again from Deuteronomy. Jesus says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this passage Jesus quotes from in Deuteronomy is another reference to Israel in the wilderness, and we can find that account, which Deuteronomy references, in Exodus chapter 17. Now, in Exodus, the people of Israel are testing God by asking for a sign that God is with them. Think about it. If you know the story, Israel had just gone through the Red Sea. God had parted the Red Sea. Israel had just seen God provide manna, bread out of nowhere for them. And Israel still wanted a sign. They were like, God, we still don't believe you're with us. And so we want to test you. So given this context, I believe the second doubt that underlines this test Satan is tempting Jesus with is, if God really loves you, where is he? If God really loves you, have him prove that he's here. I mean, Satan even takes Jesus to the top of the temple. This was a place where the people of Israel knew that God's presence was supposed to be. And Satan tempts Jesus, if God really loves you, ask God to prove that he's with you. Have him prove it. In seasons of wilderness, a question that can rise to the surface is, is God with me? Or where is God in the midst of this pain and wandering? During seasons of wilderness, it can feel like God is silent or distant. And it's normal to ask those questions. It's all right to be honest with God about how you're feeling. And when we wonder where God is, the Bible invites us to look to Jesus' life on this earth. In Jesus' life, we have a reminder that no matter what we're going through, no matter how bad the wilderness is, God sees you, God hears you, God loves you, and God is with you. The enemy is going to try to convince you that you're all alone, but God is with you.
So does God love me? Will God provide? Is God with me? These are the doubts that Satan throws at Jesus. And now Satan, in his third temptation, heads straight for Jesus' purpose. The reason Jesus was on this earth. Satan asked Jesus to worship him in exchange for power over all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, this is a really interesting temptation because I think what Satan is implying is Jesus skipped the suffering. Here's all the power. Jesus, I know you're here to establish the kingdom of God. Here's an easy way to do that. Just, just worship me. Just follow me. Put your hope in me. And, and you can skip all the suffering that you're going to have to go through. I think the doubt that underlines this temptation is, Jesus, if God really loved you, why are you going through all of this? Why are you going through this time of wilderness? Now, Jesus had to know that following the Father would mean this wouldn't be the last wilderness he would go through. Jesus knew that there would be pain and betrayal in his journey. He knew there would be a cross, that he would taste the sting of death. And while there would be resurrection, there would be a lot of trouble leading up to that. It's like Satan is tempting, Jesus, this path is going to lead through so much pain. Does God really love you? I mean, you're going through all this pain. I think that's a question we can sometimes ask in seasons of wilderness in our own life. I know I've asked that question personally. God, if you love me, why am I going through all this stuff? If you truly loved me, you say you have a purpose and plan, but why am I lost in this wilderness? In the midst of this pain, the enemy is going to try and convince us that God loves us less, that God loves you less. But Jesus knew this wasn't true. Jesus' life reminds us that there will be brokenness, but God's love is present in that brokenness. If we look through the Bible, we find stories of God's people going through the wilderness, and there are paths that lead them all sorts of directions and in weird places and in, in great moments. But what the Bible reminds us is that in the wilderness, God is with his people in the wilderness. That God is working in the wilderness. This wilderness is not wasted. He is doing something in the wilderness. And that God will make a way for his people through the wilderness. What Jesus' life invites us to do is to trust that God will never leave us alone in the middle of a wilderness because God loves us. See, each of the ways Satan tempts Jesus revolves around Jesus' identity. If God really loves you, does God love you? Are you sure God loves you? And when we go through times of wilderness, we can be faced by these same questions. In the exhaustion or hunger for the season to end, the enemy can use these same lies, insecurities, and doubts in our lives. So these are the doubts, but how do we navigate the wilderness? How do we get through the wilderness? Well, Jesus shows us how in his last answer. We worship in the wilderness. We worship in the wilderness. How do we navigate the wilderness? We worship in the wilderness. I thought that's a cute alliteration. I don't know about you, but to worship in the wilderness, that's pretty cool. And it might be cute, but it is true. How do we get to through the wilderness? We worship in the wilderness. We always say at Mill City that worship is the rhythm of remembering and declaring who God is and who God says we are. And that's what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4. Remember, Jesus has just been baptized, and God has affirmed his identity. This is my son whom I love. 
There was nothing Jesus had to do to earn that love. There was nothing Jesus could do to lose that love. God loved Jesus because God loves. So in the wilderness, when the enemy tempts Jesus to doubt that identity, to doubt that love, Jesus needs a way to remind himself of that identity. And he responds in worship through the worship rhythm of memorizing and reciting scripture. Jesus reminds himself who God says that he is, that Jesus is loved. And Jesus uses worship to declare who he knows God to be, that God will provide what he needs, that God is present. He doesn't need a test to know that God is with him and that God is worth worshiping no matter where this wilderness goes. I will put my trust in the God who cares about me. In the same way, when we're faced with times of wilderness and when we're tempted to listen to the lies or doubts the enemy brings up, Jesus invites us to look to his example and worship. Now, worship helps us do two things. First, worship helps us cling to Jesus. We cling to Jesus and remember who God is, that God is holding on to us, that God is with us. We cling to Jesus and declare what God has done that God will provide, that God has made a way through the wilderness in the past and will make a way through the wilderness now. We cling to Jesus and remember who God is. We cling to Jesus and remember who God says we are. Steph talked about this last week, but who does God say we are? This is our identity, that we are loved, forgiven children in God's family. We are loved and forgiven children in God's family with a purpose to join in the in-breaking kingdom and reign of God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are loved. There is nothing more we could do to earn that love. There's nothing we could do to lose that love. We are loved. And not only are we loved, but we're forgiven. In the midst of the wilderness, we will stumble into the lies and we will believe the doubts. And there are times where we will put our hope in something that will fail or hope in something that is not God. And when we do that, the enemy is going to try to convince you, okay, you did that, you stumbled, now you have to approach God out of shame because you lost God's love. But worship reminds us that that's not true. Worship reminds us that we get to approach God with confidence because of what Jesus did, because we are forgiven. We get to approach God out of God's grace. And this grace is abundant. This grace is available for us all. All we have to do is ask for that grace. So we are loved and forgiven. Worship reminds us of that identity. Second, worship silences the enemy. Worship is a form of spiritual warfare. Do you know that? When we do this on Sunday, when we sing, when we pray, when we read Scripture during the week, these are not just practices. This is a form of spiritual warfare. This is our greatest tool. This is a part of living into the in-breaking kingdom of God. When we worship, we are declaring against the powers of darkness in this world that we have a God who is with us in the struggle and who will help us overcome. That we serve a king who is victorious. I love how Jesus uses worship to rebuke Satan away from me. Get out, beat it. You don't belong here. And we've been given that same power in Jesus' name. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. And when we worship in Jesus' name, we can say the same thing to the enemy. Get out. Lies, get out. Doubt, get out. Insecurities, get out. Worship reminds us that when the enemy tells us that we have no control over the situation, 
that we have a God who is in control. That there is one person in control, and that is Jesus, and he is greater than the darkness. And he loves us beyond what we can ask or imagine. When we worship in Jesus' name, we silence the lies of the enemy. There is power when we worship as sons and daughters of the King in Jesus' name. So worship helps us cling to Jesus, and worship silences the enemy. It helps us navigate the wilderness in these ways. So as we close this morning, my question for you is, do you have a rhythm of worship in your life? Or what is a rhythm of worship in your life? Are there ways in your everyday spaces that you remember and declare who God is and remind yourself who God says that you are? Now, there are a lot of rhythms of worship, and I've put a couple up on the screen, actually, and we're just going to walk through some just to give you an idea. If you're not sure, you're like, I don't know what a rhythm of worship in my life could look like. We'll just walk through a couple just to give you a picture of what you could do. But here are a couple of rhythms of worship that I've seen in my own life and that I know that some of you in our community have used. For some people, a rhythm of worship is prayer. It could be unstructured. It could be written out. It could be really long. It could be really short. I know for my family growing up, a rhythm of worship was praying the Lord's Prayer, which we find in Matthew chapter 6. We'll read about that later in this series. And that prayer was a way that we remembered and declared who God is and remembered what God said about us. Another rhythm of worship could be reading or dwelling in Scripture. I know that's a rhythm that many of you in the community have used. This past year, you all went through the Bible in a year. Dwelling on Scripture, reading Scripture can be a rhythm of worship. Some people even go as far as just picking one verse to define their whole year. This is a rhythm of worship. Another rhythm of worship for some of you is writing. Writing or journaling or writing poetry or writing music. This is a way to express yourself and remember, this is what God has done in my life and this is what God says about me. Writing is a rhythm of worship. For others, it's physical exercise. To remember, wow, God made me uniquely and allows me to use my body to glorify him. And so I can use physical exercise as a rhythm of worship. For some people, it's sitting outside in nature. For some people, it's just posturing yourself differently. I know uh, sometimes when I pray, I sometimes get on my knees and pray. Or when I worship, sometimes I hold my hands open and I worship. And there's nothing special about those postures. It's not like God's like, well, Ashish is kneeling. I'm going to answer his prayers. But the posture reminds us who God is. <laughs> I'm not in control. That God's in control. And my hands open remind me to say, God, I want you to use me for your glory. Show me where I'm going. I surrender my life to you. Another rhythm of worship could be the practice of lament. Now, the wilderness can be hard. And so many times when we think of worship, we think of, well, it's just like joyful songs, upbeat songs. Like, that's what we're going to do. And it can feel like, well, there's no place for sadness or, or for me to express the brokenness or frustration and anger I feel. Yet the Bible reminds us that lament is a form of worship. Lament helps us create a space where we can be honest with God about how we're feeling and hold on to the hope of who God is. In this season, if lament is a practice you want to lean into, but you don't really know where to begin, I'd encourage you to look at Psalm 22. Begin there. That's a beautiful lament that David has written. And try to see, okay, do these words apply to my situation? Lament could be a rhythm of worship. 
And finally, for me, music is a rhythm of worship. That's my rhythm of worship, singing these lyrics, listening to this music. I got to admit, I listen to KTIS. I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> sometimes it's Caleb, sometimes it's KTIS, but I'm not ashamed to say that. Because what I found is worship music guides me through the wilderness seasons of my life and guides me through the mundane. It is through these lyrics in my mind that I'm able to hold on to who God is and hold on to who God says I am. And I take these lyrics that we sing on Sunday and I actually find that they apply to the rest of my week. There's something powerful about these lyrics and then when we use music, it's a really great way to memorize things. Some of you have used it to memorize the 50 states. I kind of use it to memorize, okay, what is true about God and what is true about what God says about me? And it happens throughout my life. I remember one night I had just gotten up and I had just had a really bad dream. I could feel the fear start to creep in and I could feel really unsettled. And all of a sudden I didn't know what to say and these lyrics popped into my mind, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. That's a song we sang on Sunday that applied in my daily life. Or right now I'm going through grad school and it's a 78 credit program and it is exhausting. And there'll be times where I'm writing the paper and I don't really know where to go. And all of a sudden, the lyrics pop into my mind. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And I'm like, Lord, I need help with this paper. Give me help. Or even with COVID, every morning I wake up and there is fear and worry on my mind. And the lyric that just, I, I was literally printing music for the band on Thursday and this lyric popped into my mind. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me wisdom to see things like you do. You're my help and my refuge. Singing and remembering these lyrics has become such a powerful rhythm of worship in my life. And maybe that's true for you as well. Now, there are so many other rhythms, and they don't have to be complicated or time-consuming. If you want to check out more rhythms, you can go to millcitychurch.com discipleship. And when you go there, you'll find a bunch of worship experiments that are based off the different spiritual pathways or the different ways that God has created us. But check it out and try a few this next week and see what you think of it. Now, one thing to note about these rhythms is the rhythms in themselves are not going to get us through the wilderness. There's nothing special about the rhythms. But the rhythms point us to a God who is going to get us through the wilderness, a God who is working in the wilderness and a God who loves us deeply in the midst of the wilderness seasons of our life. And so this week, try a worship rhythm. Try one out and see how it goes for you. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we end with our corporate rhythm of worship this morning. Mill City, we will all go through seasons of wilderness. It's a universal human experience. And in this wilderness, we will face lies and doubts and insecurities that the enemy brings up. And so how do we navigate this wilderness? We worship in the wilderness. We worship in the wilderness and we remember who God is. We worship in the wilderness and remember what God says about us. That God says, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. That is how we are going to navigate through the wilderness by worshiping in the season. And imagine a world that saw a community navigate these common human experiences by pointing to Jesus and reminding themselves who God says we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. 
We thank you that you are a God who is our refuge and our strength. We thank you that you are a God who is not only in the wilderness, but you are working in the wilderness. We thank you that you are a God who loves us deeply and will not let us go. And so Jesus, as a community, would we be people that worship in the wilderness? Would we be people that worship in the mundane, people that worship on the mountaintop experiences? Jesus, people that worship and let that worship shape and form who we are and remind us of you. Jesus, continue to guide us as we head through this final time of corporate worship. And would it influence the way that we step into our week? We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray.